Hey everybody, welcome back to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian, here with episode 69, and we got a nice show for you here tonight, because it's a birthday episode. Whose birthday is it, Dan? Hey Brian, it's your birthday. Happy birthday, my man. Another year. Hey, thank you. Yes, another year indeed, but it's not just my birthday, because pretty soon it's going to be my brother Andrew's birthday, so... Just like when we did this last year, I've brought him aboard again. Are you out there in the ether, Andrew? I'm here, and you're right. It's going to be my birthday sometime soon. we got birthdays a week apart, and I'm excited to be back. And the movie series that we have this week is another good one. Don't have as much of a connection to it personally as The Rock Fire, but I'm definitely excited. Yeah, we definitely bonded over this series back in the day in in some sort of way (laughs) (laughs) so yes the films that we'll be talking about are the spy kids series written and directed among other things by robert rodriguez so dan before we drag you through this deep dive what had been your previous exposure to the spy kids series yeah i had seen spy kids one multiple times it was one of those movies it's probably like 10 or 15 of them that for whatever reason just got stuck in our either DVR or DVD player. And we just played it on loop over the course of a year, you know? And so I've seen it a bunch of times, but I haven't seen it in probably at least 15 years. So I remembered a lot of beats, but I didn't remember every single thing in order. So it was fun to come at it with fresh eyes and I hadn't seen Anything else in the Spy Kids cinematic universe prior to this week? Yeah, as we'll be discussing, this is a series with tentacles, tendrils that branch out. And it's hard, really, to say that you've seen the whole thing. You really got to do your work. This keeps growing. Right. The more you research, the more you realize they planted Easter eggs that bring you even further out. Oh, this thing appeared in this. Well, this must be this, et cetera, et cetera. I have actually a little uh, map that we when we can talk a little bit about it later of the the all the ways that different things connect here. So, but mostly we're going to focus on the original trilogy. So, Spy Kids from two thousand one, Spy Kids two, The Island of Lost Dreams from two thousand two, and Spy Kids three, also known as Spy Kids three D, Game Over from two thousand three. Now, before we take a look at these movies. I wanted to just kind of do a little State of the Union, check in here at birthday time, talk a little bit about some birthday thoughts, some birthday feelings. So, Andrew, on the eve of your, what is it, you're going to be 25, right? Yes, it's a big one. How are you feeling just about to turn 25? Well, that's obviously a milestone, quarter of a century, so that's big. You can rent a car without paying an extra insurance fee, yeah. You're right, that's the only thing. Man, I'll have to do that. Well, I think you can also run for the House of Representatives. Really? Yeah, it's 25 for the House, 30 for the Senate, 35 for President. And you got my vote, Andrew. (laughs) Thank you. You too. I'll probably be running a car long before I ever go for that, but hopefully someday. I'm at Disney right now, working at Magic Kingdom in the college program, and 
I am certainly older than the majority, slightly. Most people are 22 or 23, but obviously that's a small margin, so I'm not too old. There are old people in the college program, but yes, 25 definitely seems like a big change from previous birthdays. I want to pause on something here real quick, Andrew. You said you're working at Magic Kingdom. I feel like last time I checked with you, you were doing the It's a Small World ride. Is that what you're still doing? Yes. Um, so I'm in Fantasyland West specifically, which constitutes three ride areas. And I work at It's a Small World in Peter Pan. How many times a day do you contemplate suicide having to hear that song on loop? <laughs> um, guests ask me that every day, which is a bigger cause of my contemplating suicide. <laughs> but honestly, I kind of don't notice it anymore. After like a month, I stopped hearing it. Right, right. It's like if you have enough spicy food, you don't notice the spicy food anymore. But instead of like acid on your tongue, it's acid in your ears. So yeah, you're right. Just kind of runs through. Gotcha. And speaking of old people, I just turned 32. 100,000 in binary. Every power of two, it's a special one. Yeah, I've turned a corner as well. Statistics say you have one more of those. Oh, 64. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Probably going to get there. If I don't listen to It's a Small World too many times. <laughs> but yeah, it's been another strange year. Strange week specifically, but th this week's been good strange. So I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I, we just went to Cracker Barrel had a birthday cake so i'm feeling good nice and i just watched all the spy kids films yeah i just wanted to shout out a couple other movies that i thought of that were like potential candidates for the show this week i pitched to my brother uh, jimmy neutron which was another 2001 film one of the first ones that he saw in theaters he would have been uh about four then yep you're right. My earliest memory is seeing a standee for Jimmy Neutron in a movie theater. Nice. And of course, I've I've brought up various Jimmy Neutron plot points, mostly from the television series, uh, but from the movie too, because it was early 2000s when we got cable for the first time. And for whatever reason, Jimmy Neutron was one of the uh, television series that we settled on watching a lot of. But Andrew convinced me that we'd have more to talk about with the Spy Kids franchise, so, so here we are. Yes, you're right. One thing that really bothers me is how many people don't know that Jimmy Neutron started with a movie or the movie. Like, people either think it came after the show or just don't know that it happened at all. And it's the bane of my existence. That's interesting. <laughs> it's like, you're like Smash Mouth, how people think that... <laughs> All-Star is the Shrek song, but really it's the Mystery Men song. It's it's a little bit like that. It's actually not really that much like that, but... <laughs> I see where you're coming from. We're performing a valuable community service in this episode, yeah, just like we do every time. <laughs> We're widening the knowledge base about important things like this. No, but I, I think it was a good choice. I think it's a very interesting series. You know, it's not going to go down as one of the golden trilogies of cinema, but it's it's got some really interesting things going on with it. And I think it was a good pick. I don't 
know how birthday-ish it is, and I kind of want to hear if you have specific birthday memories associated with this series. But it, it's definitely one that I would not have expected to put a lot of thought into that I did end up putting a decent amount of thought into over the past week. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm glad you brought up the birthdayness aspect because there's not too much here for me. It's not a series that screams birthday to me, but we've been around the calendar once. You know, I picked the quintessential birthday movie last time around, and I was really scratching my head about what, what else is a birthday film to me. I think I did finally identify something that's very birthday, and I'll, I'll have to save it for next year. Because then what I went to next on the flowchart when I couldn't come up with anything else that was pure birthday, uh, next step was, well, what movie did I share a connection with with my brother? So our history with the Spy Kids series was we rented the first one from Blockbuster and watched it a couple times. We might have even rented it a couple times. And then second and third we saw in theaters. So... 2002 for the second one, I would have been 12 and Andrew would have been five and then 13 and six for number three. So seven years between us, I'd say round about until the Rockafire days in 2013, we weren't super close, but definitely this was a movie going experience we shared. I feel like around five and 12 are the lower bands and upper bands to really dig this movie it's like it was a good spread for this specific movie i think that's a good point i'm glad you remember that much of seeing them in theaters versus running them pretty sure we have the first and third on dvd is that true well we definitely have the third one on dvd yeah because i watched it nonstop. <laughs> how else could you experience spy kids 3d if you didn't have the original Spy Kids 3D glasses, which indeed, I went to the DVD box and dug them out. They were still in good shape. And they say SK3D across the top. And this is the red and blue anaglyph 3D glasses, old cardboard style. Not like what we talked about with Christmas Carol with like the high-tech Blu-ray, DVD, TV, all that. This is old school 3D. Yeah, yeah. And we'll dive into that a little more. Once we get to the third installment. But uh, to begin with, let's uh, talk a little bit about the creator of these films, Robert Rodriguez. What Robert Rodriguez films have you seen, Dan? Let's see. Honestly, prior to this week, I think it was only Spy Kids and Sin City, which I'm pretty fond of Spin City. Or the Spin City is very different from Sin City. Spin City is a, yeah. Yeah, Michael J. Fox is in Spin City. I feel like somebody must have done a mashup of those online at some point. But no, uh, Sin City. And let's see. So that was two prior to this week. And then this week I watched Spy Kids 1, 2, 3, and 4. I watched Shark Boy and Lava Girl. I watched We Could Be Heroes and Machete and Machete Kills. God damn it. Wow. Oh, that's really good. That's uh, seven that I hadn't seen. <laughs> yeah, pardon my pardon my French, but man, 
I knew that Dan would do that. Somewhere inside me, I knew that if I opened the door, he would go whole hog and watch them all. I was going to watch, at the very least, Spy Kids 1 through 4, because, spoilers, we'll say it now, Spy Kids 4 came out in 2011. Basically a reboot. Yeah, it's it's pretty distinct from the other three, so I'm confident in my decision to just assign one through three. We will talk a little bit about four. I thought about Shark Boy and Lava Girl, uh, so we'll be discussing that too, but I haven't watched that yet. I thought it would be a better use of my time to, like, send in job applications and, and things of that ilk. <laughs> you sure about that? Um, but... Uh, uh, no, I'm just know. kidding. <laughs> I haven't seen... <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, so how can I judge? Pretty wacky. Yeah, so we're going to rely on Dan and Andrew to be our resident shark boy experts. And then I was just going to, like, acknowledge that Machete happened. And I literally didn't learn about, what is it? We It's not We Were Heroes, because that was the Mel Gibson movie. We can be heroes. I didn't know that, that was a thing until today, like an hour before we're sitting down to record. Yeah, I didn't know it was a thing until you sent it to me, because I thought my coverage was complete, and then I had to scramble to watch one more. So, Well, that's from, like, within the past year, right? Yes, 2020 it, it came out. And that is also even more tenuously connected to Shark Boy and Lava Girl than Spy Kids 4 is to the first three. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. The next birthday episode can be the extended universe. <laughs> That's right. No, um, for people trying to gaze into the future, though, I will say I am cooking up a follow-up episode. So uh, if you've been keeping your ear to the ground, you know that Scream 5 is in theaters. Valentine's Day is going to bring Zombies 3 on the Disney Channel. Is that confirmed, by the way? I mean, that would make sense. I just haven't seen that confirmed as the release date. Oh, I actually haven't been looking at press releases, but I expect it's going to be right around then. That's when the first two were, so yeah, it would make sense. But it's coming, and you better believe we're going to provide some follow-up coverage. So just keep piling things on. Maybe by that point I will have watched the Shark Boy saga. Sorry, this is not particularly connected but one of my co-workers worked one of the middle of the night filming events at magic kingdom and saw the zombies people mm. yeah tall boy and uh what's her name <laughs> <laughs> look it's the stars of zombies tall boy and what's her name meg donnelly and milo Mannheim, or something like, like that. Those are them. that's exactly what it is but i saw a thing pop up new on disney plus and it was like the disney parks holiday special yep with the people who were running around the park for whatever reason were all zombie stars it was like not just those two but also the um african-american cheerleader girl and bucky the tyrannical cheer captain that's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> so my knowledge just to step back a moment of robert rodriguez i have seen sin city I've also seen From Dusk Till Dawn, which was a movie that Buzzed On Movies host Teddy introduced me to. And that was a collaboration between Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. And the two of them, I guess, are like best friends. And they collaborate on a lot of stuff. They made the movie Grindhouse together. And this won't be the last time we talk about Grindhouse in this episode. 
Yeah, they're kindred spirits for sure. They they're both kind of DIY bootstrapper, really into pulpy stuff, and they're buddies too. And they they've collaborated on a lot of stuff. And I think they both like to write their own stuff. And you mentioned Rodriguez goes even farther than that on his stuff, but I think Tarantino has appeared in some of Rodriguez's movies as well. Yeah, he was in From Dusk Till Dawn, and both. Rodriguez and Tarantino are known for kind of channeling exploitation cinema, bringing in tropes from movies of the 60s and 70s, and swinging for the fences in terms of making it edgy and adult. And, you know, there's blood and explosions and stylistic action, and not the people you would necessarily assume would be making a blockbuster for children. So these movies definitely have a distinctive flavor. Yeah. So with that, let's take a look at Spy Kids 1, finally. This chapter came out in 2001. So how old were you in 2001, Dan? I was 13. Okay. So bear that in mind, listeners. We're all going to be advancing a year at a time as these movies go by. Spy Kids 1 opens with a family. As the movie progresses, they're all going to end up being spies, but... At the start, we don't know that yet. We kind of know, at least two of them. Yeah, we we assume. And, and we learn pretty early on that at least the parents are spies. So the mom is telling her two children a bedtime story at the opening of the movie. And it's about the spies who fell in love. And we're seeing flashbacks as we tell the story that this is actually the story of the mom and the dad, who at one point were spies representing rival nations. So these were Ingrid Cortez, the mom, and Gregorio Cortez, the dad. They were initially assigned to assassinate each other, but instead a romance developed, and they ended up getting married. I kind of want to know a little bit more about the geopolitical ramifications of this. <laughs> For one, I mean, is he from Spain? Like, Antonio Banderas is from Spain, but in whenever this time was, like the Cold War, like the late Cold War, we weren't fighting Spain. So is he supposed to be, like, Soviet? Or And, and, and if he was, and they're, like, on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain, I don't think you can just decide to get married and have the whole intelligence community be okay with that. Yeah, I think in general this movie this series and really everything that I would consider in the spy kids cinematic universe has a very fantastical vision of what a spy is. They're basically superheroes kind of it's like they have all skills. I mean, they're kind of the typical secret agent that you see in movie, but kind of on steroids in terms of gadgets and skills. And they're simultaneously like, nanoscientists inventors and they're acrobatic fighters and they're everything all at once and so you know one thing i've learned more i watched the show the americans and also like just reading about some high profile spies quote-unquote spies is like a lot of them are just like boring computer programmers who put files on usb drives or like smuggle documents in their shirt as they walk out of buildings it's like far less romantic and high-tech and cool than we see here. Not to say there's not some of that somewhere in the world. 
everything about the espionage element of this is definitely on the fantasy side. Well, that's a very good assessment all around. Yeah, they're basically action heroes. This first film is really the most like a traditional spy movie. And it's still not very much like one. But by the second one, it's just completely out the window. I don't know if you could even classify the second and third ones as spy movies. Right. They're just like action fantasy pieces. But the story wraps up when the mom says that the two spies got married. And when they had children, they decided to retire from field work. We know because of all the flashbacks that this is the parents' story. But the kids don't know that yet. So they're just dealing with their run-of-the-mill child problems. These siblings are the older Carmen, who's a preteen, and the younger Junie. So we find out that Carmen, like, regularly skips school, I guess. And Junie has anxiety, and he doesn't have a lot of friends. And he's got warts on his hands, which... I'm squeamish about warts. I don't like warts. Yeah, it's really weird. I don't like it. I, I had warts on my foot when I was a kid, not on my hands, though. And I only had, like, one at a time. I'd never had... This This dude's rocking, like, eight Band-Aids, as if <laughs> he's, like, a lizard man or something with these warts. I, I, I don't know how common that level of warts is, but yeah. I, I've... Ugh, I don't even like to talk about it, but I've had them on my fingers and on my feet at different times, but not for a while, not for a long time. One thing I want to say, it was funny that you asked my age, because it turns out that the actress who plays Carmen, previously known as Alexa Vega, her name now I think is Alexa Pena Vega or something along those lines. Uh, she merged names with her husband when she got married. She's born within two months of me so uh she's right about my age as well cool cool so junie is isolated to the point that he tells his parents that he has friends that he doesn't have he's like made up friends that they never see and also he's really obsessed with a children's show called floops fooglies which is super important to the film this is kind of the crux of the film and it's this weird kids show that, especially in this watch through, I was thinking, oh, he's watching Pee Wee, Pee Wee's Playhouse. It, it's exactly what it is. I mean, even the guy who plays it, Alan Cumming, he even looks like Paul Rubens when Paul Rubens was a little bit younger, which makes me just think that they were cowards for not casting Paul Rubens in this role. <laughs> What's kind of interesting is I was trying to figure out if I had seen Alan Cumming in any other movies, and I found out he was in the movie Buddy, which is about a gorilla. Have you ever seen that one, Dan? No. Okay, so it's this story based partially on a true story about this upper-class family in New York who raised a gorilla in their penthouse, and Alan Cumming, I guess, is in this movie playing a helper who they hire to like watch over the gorilla at the house. But what's weird is Paul Rubens is also in the movie. Oh man. As like a gorilla expert who tells the family that gorillas are hostile creatures who will tear you limb from limb. And, and so it really didn't help clarify to me who Alan Cumming was because both of these people are, are actually in that film. 
Right. But in Floop's Fooglies, Alan Cumming is the eccentric Fagin Floop. And he's like a metrosexual. You know what he, he reminded me of also was Dr. T. Because he's this guy who wears like long flowing coats of many colors. And he has this wonderland he oversees. Yeah, that thought crossed my mind as well. But uh, in this show, it's like all green screen for one. He has this virtual like hollow deck that he conducts the show inside. So the Fooglies he has are these, they're like monsters. I don't know. They're weird creatures that we catch glimpses of early on. There's one that looks like a jester. They, they just kind of all have these squashy features and they're all different colors and they they speak this chattering nonsense. Yeah, I think to the extent that this is anything other than Pee-wee, it's Teletubbies with the freaky, disproportionate, quasi-human creatures populating a bizarre visual scape. And then, of course, there are also the Thumb Thumbs. Which are these humanoids, except their head and all appendages are giant thumbs. And they just kind of walk around looking upsetting. For some reason, the thumb thumbs, when they're in their, like, ninja costumes, or whatever they are, are even more terrifying than when they're just fingers. I really don't like it. <laughs> when, when are they in a ninja costume? Pretty soon here. Yeah. They're like, I think their first appearance is when they break into the spy hut. Yeah, they wear these black suits with masks that are similar to if you've ever played the Sega CD game Night Trap. That's what <laughs> these thumb thumbs in ninja suits look like, like the murderers in Night Trap. Oh, yeah. They're like kind of concealed to leave some doubt in the viewer's mind. Are they actually thumb thumbs? Because mm -hmm. at that point, yeah, we don't know. We're, we're jumping a little ahead here. They're with who we think might be good guys at that point. Right, right. And uh, but <laughs> what were you about to say, Dan? Because I think that was a good line. So what actually do you think is on this TV show? We see the intro song and we see his like sign off message. But what like is it a learning to count show? Is it like a weird misadventures of the floop floops or whatever they're called? Like, I don't know. I'm just trying. I want to see the pilot episode of Floops Fooglies. Yeah. And, and what is the demographic that he's trying to reach? Right. Is it just specifically super isolated people? Which if it is, I can respect that. There's, you know, I've said there's a lot of peewee in Gauntlet, but there might be a little bit of floop too. <laughs> but remember, we have the parents who are spies already. And so the dad, Antonio Banderas, playing Gregorio Cortez, is receiving intel, and he learns that some of their fellow agents have gone missing. So Gregorio and Ingrid, who we'll probably just call dad and mom, remember they have retired from field work, but they've been called back to active duty because these other agents are disappearing. And Gregorio has got to go find them. Specifically, the name we keep hearing is Donegan. Donegan is gone. We got to go find Donegan. This time I learned that Donegan is played by Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. It's pretty out there. 
just kind of an interesting factoid, yeah. All of Robert Rodriguez's films have both impressive and unusual casts, I would say. And having Mike Judge show up, I think, is, is an example of that. Definitely the villain in the third movie had me scratching my chin the whole time. Like, what was the conversation that led to that casting? We can get to that. <laughs> but, yeah, just... Uh, you always have interesting casts. I gotta say, the cast in Spy Kids is, in general, really good. I'm a little medium on Junie. He's the only one I'm a little medium on. He's not bad. I think the actress who plays Carmen is good. And, man, getting Antonio Banderas and Carla Gugina, Gugino. Is that... I don't know how you say it. Yeah, it ends with an O. I don't know if it's Gugino or Gugino. Yeah. And I've seen her in a, at least one or two things. They're awesome. And they got some steam and chemistry together, like... They actually seem like a married couple. I was I was digging this cast as I was watching. Yeah, I agree. And so Gregorio is about to head out the door on his secret spy mission. And the mom says, hey, if you get to go on a spy mission, I should too. So they head off and they leave surprise guest Cheech Marin to supervise the kids. So here is Cheech of Cheech and Chong. Uh, and he says he's their Uncle Felix. Although we soon learn that's not the case. Because, uh, well, for a little while we're following the parents as they head out in this, like, cool submarine car. There's a lot of gadgets in these movies, as you would expect from a more traditional spy film. But they're always, like, wacky in some way. And incorporate just over-the-top, very fake CGI. Some of them are really clever, like the diamond ring that is the engagement ring for the mom is also a laser that can burn the ropes. And so some of the, a lot of the things actually kind of tie together the themes of the movie, but they're also just fun and goofy, like you said. A lot of thought went into the gadgets in this. But while they're under the sea in this sub, Gregorio and Ingrid get waylaid by Thumb Thumbs to get attacked. And, and yeah, I think at first they might be in these ninja costumes. Certainly at different points in the movie, they're concealed of what exactly they are. But Ingrid and Gregorio get brought aboard and captured by Floop. Floop's a bad guy. He's accompanied by his assistant, Minion, played by Tony Shalhoub. So I know Tony Shalhoub best from Monk, but he pops up in a couple places. He was on Wings. What else have we seen Tony Shalhoub in? Oh, Galaxy Quest. That's what I was thinking of. Is Minion a name of honor? Is it like a title? Or is it actually his name? And this was like a, the profession that was destined for him. Well, it's both. Because most of the movie, Floop is calling him Minion. Like, oh, that is his Minion. So that's what he's calling him. But then we find out his name is actually Alexander Minion. So it's both. That's pretty good. That's Mr. Minion to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever he says at the end. <laughs> so these guys work together on putting out the show, but they're also, as we come to learn, weapons developers. <laughs> they're bankrolled by this guy named Mr. Lisp, played by Robert Patrick, the Terminator from Terminator 2, the uh, the melty one. The liquid Terminator? Yeah. The guy who can walk through prison bars. I didn't place that. That's pretty cool. 
And I don't know exactly who Mr. Lisp is. I guess he's just a megalomaniacal rich guy who wants to take over the world. But I do really like the idea of bankrolling weird creatives because they'll have the crazy ideas that will make your super weapons. It's like, give somebody like Paul Rubens a bunch of money and say, okay, you make this insane art. Could you make something that would destroy the world? There could be something there, yeah. One thing you just kind of alluded to it that I think also relates to your question about the geopolitical impact of all of this. It seems like there is a global spy society. I don't know what OSS actually stands for, but it seems like it's not nation versus nation, but world versus supervillain. And that that is the extent of the politics here. But I guess Lisp is on supervillain and not world side. So I don't know. They do get a little intermingled. That's really interesting, actually. So the OSS was, in reality, the precursor to the CIA. It's like the Office of Secret Security or something. I I should really know the actual abbreviation. But it was a real government body. It was like the name that the CIA had during World War II, and then it became the CIA after World War II. Interesting. That's in our real world. But yes, the organization that these spies in the movie work for is called the OSS. And yeah, it seems to mean more than just the interests of one nation. Did you say what it really was? I just searched OSS wiki. It says the Office of Strategic Services was the intelligence agency of the U.S. during the World War II. That's what it was. Okay, so not secret security. It was, what did you say? Strategic Services. Not that that's necessarily actually what it stands for in the movie, but... Right, they don't tell you. But it's kind of like in Elf, when they use Gimbal's as the stand-in department store. You're right. It's like, there was a Gimbal's at one point, but since it doesn't exist anymore, we can use the name willy-nilly. Kind of the deal with OSS here. Interesting. But the next evil genius flute project that they announce at this business meeting is they are now going to start making spy kids these are going to be robotic children made in the likeness of the sons and daughters of world leaders so they're going to like send these out to infiltrate influential families but the robots are going to have in their heads the secrets gleaned from the kidnapped secret agents who Floop has in his possession as well. Because one of these like creative genius slash evil genius ideas that he has had is to like drain the brains of secret agents and in the process mutate them. And these mutated agents are imprisoned and forced to perform as the Fooglies on the show. (laughs) Which is so twisted. Uh, I'll say my initial gauging and rating for this series would have put Spy Kids 1 last because I was, like, afraid of it. Wow. The Fooglies really disturbed me, and so did the Thumb Thumbs. I think my only mention of this series prior to this episode on the podcast has been to mention that I was disturbed by Thumb Thumbs. (laughs) They're uncanny. We'll see if that holds up once we reach our rating section. But uh, 
Yeah, these these fuglies are are creepy. Another thing we learn at some point, and maybe it's around now, is that not only are these secret agents actually the freaky characters on the show, that but they've been transmogrified and turned into like unholy death creatures, but they also ha- now have like chipmunked Ivan Etniaj speech, so you can record it and play it backwards, and you hear what they're saying. It's like uh, Paul is dead or whatever. Yeah, or Twin Peaks. Now, because we just watched Clash of the Titans on The Goods, I put together that this really felt like a Harryhausen homage. Mm. Because Floop has clay models of these secret agents, and he mutates them by smooshing the clay. Just like when Laurence Olivier took the model of Calavos and, and smooshed it and made him into a monster. That's the way these Fuglies are made. And I think this is an apt thing to bring up because definitely Spy Kids 2 has got a whole lot of Harryhausen in the mix. But this army of Spy Kids that Floop is making isn't ready to head out and take over the world yet because they can't talk or think for themselves, I guess. They have spy skills downloaded into their muscle memory, but they, they can't pass as real people. And to do that, they're going to need something called the third brain. And luckily, by coincidence, we find out that Gregorio himself, spy dad Antonio Banderas, was the one who built the third brain. And so that's what these uh, thumb-thumbs that are after the family now are looking for. And, and in short order, they're attacking the house, breaking in, joined, as someone mentioned, I think it was Dan, by, like, double agents. People we thought were good, but are, are now turning out to be on the thumb-thumb side. <laughs> the thumb-thumb side. That's a good metaphor for being evil. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> and so Cheech Marin reveals, I'm not your uncle. I'm just somebody in the spy organization, and you gotta get out of here. You gotta go to the secret safe house, kind of like Obi-Wan when the aunt and uncle get burned to a crisp. You know, you gotta you gotta get out of here, you gotta step into a bigger world, and realize your destiny of being a part of this fantastical spy realm. So there's, like, a long series of chases and battles between these thumb-thumb ninjas and the double agents and the spy kids. And what ultimately lays Junie and Carmen low is a confrontation with their own robot doppelgangers because there are spy kids made in their images. And so these, these like, robot clones fight them and are able to take the third brain from them and get it to floop. Yeah, I like uh, I like doppelganger fights in general. And this was fun because we, we had just gotten to know these kids and then they have kind of these simmering tensions. And then we have a fight scene where they fight. So the sister fights the brother and the brother fights the sister of the doppelganger. And so it kind of takes what had been a theme and turns it into an action set piece. And I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the tension. This movie definitely does the best job in the series of really making the familial relations into like a theme that is developed and dynamic over the course of the movie. Because between Carmen and Junie specifically, there's some conflict. 
Carmen keeps saying she doesn't want to, like, have to be her brother's keeper, doesn't have to watch over him, and why do I have to teach Junie right from wrong? And stuff like that. But they're bonding as they're fighting all these CGI thumb monsters. That's how me and my brothers bonded, too. So just kidding. Yeah, it's like, some, you know, sometimes you you cross Jurassic Park with some children and you bond with them that way. Sometimes you're fighting thumb robots. Also, Flip put all the work into making these kids look identical to their human counterparts, but he didn't give them normal clothes. If he gave them normal clothes, who knows how far they would have gotten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a <laughs> that's a step that you think they would have checked off, but he's given them these like futuristic like 1984 gray jumpsuits. Heaven's Gate outfits. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, let's let's go back to Floop for a second here because he's at a crossroads and he's starting to have second thoughts of his own. As he's reflecting, we're kind of learning that I guess his passion has always been making the weird kids show. All the more insidious projects, he says, have been Minion's idea. I guess Minion has been the one pushing, hey, we should make super weapons. <laughs> Little side hustle. <laughs> let's get involved in the international terrorism yeah i man i just really like the idea of like peewee being iron man <laughs> uh i like the idea of peewee being cast as iron man in the yeah. upcoming he's movie. gonna be the one to make make my jericho make the like killer missile system but now the Spy Kid robots have come back with the third brain, and so Minion has what he needs. He's not going to need Floop anymore, so he asserts himself, like Andrew said. That's Mr. Minion. And he locks the wishy-washy Floop inside his own virtual room. So, so now Floop is trapped on the holodeck, and Minion switches on the army of now-intelligent Spy Kids. Oh, I think we should also talk about the moment when Minion mutates Gregorio into a Fugly that Junie made. Like, Junie made a drawing of his own original Fugly. That's the scariest part. <laughs> and now the dad is mutated into it. It's pretty creepy. It feels like this would do long-term damage. I mean, not to spoil it, we're going to get regular Antonio Banderas back. But... Like, this would decay your cells. Like, I don't know what's going on. Uh -huh. Yeah, I would not expect it to be as easily reversible as it turns out to be. Floop is like, I think I can turn him back. And then within, like, ten seconds, he's just back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> ah, this worked out all right. <laughs> but, yeah, let's linger here for just a second, because I don't know if Freudian is the right word. But there's definitely something psychological going on here when the storyline is that Antonio Banderas fears that he's losing his son to the influence of this television show. And that it's not going to be the dad who determines what the son grows into, but what the child is hearing and seeing on the TV. To be fair, my daughter's got obsessed with Floops Fooglies. I think I'd have the doctor on speed dial, like the a regular appointment with the therapist at that point. 
<laughs> yep. And now the father is in the clutches of the television personality and actually being mutated into the very thing that the child drew under the influence of that personage. There's a lot going on here. You're right. There's some shit to unpack there that I hadn't even thought about for sure. It's like this family, this in some ways it's like a critique of media like kind of controlling the way that the son thinks on the other hand, it's like a critique on the father for not being able to foster that connection with his son. So he transforms into the very thing that his son has like imprinted in the absence of that meaningful connection of his father. No, that's, that's some good shit there, Brian. This is good shit. It's always good shit with the Fuglies. <laughs> I see that now with the thumb thumbs. Yeah. But meanwhile, the kids, Carmen and Junie, are coming to save the day. And on their journey, they run into a guy named Machete. Now, this is Danny Trejo. So what I've learned in my research for this episode is that Robert Rodriguez definitely has a stable of actors that he uses over and over. And I, I think that's common with a lot of directors. Like with Tim Burton, you're always going to see Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. Well... With Robert Rodriguez, it's Antonio Banderas, it's Salma Hayek, and it's Danny Trejo. But this was the first thing I had seen him in. How would you describe Danny Trejo, guys? Andrew, what would you say? Hispanic. Yes, he is that. No. And no, for a moment, let's think about that point. He's... Because, no, I, I want to I wanna address that. <laughs> so, something that's interesting about this film and this series as a whole is that... We have a largely Hispanic cast, but the story is not about them being Hispanic. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a story with a broad base of appeal, but it's, you know, a, a widely Hispanic cast in a blockbuster made by a Hispanic writer, director, editor. Well, I think it also deepens some of the family themes and some of the themes about Am I losing my connection with my family and my kids to this culture that's taking over their brains, too? That is interesting. I like that. It's like, do they become completely homogenized into the mainstream? Or do they retain the family and the culture that comes with it? Where here, it's the family and culture that comes with it is being a super spy, in addition to being Hispanic. Right. As opposed to being a metrosexual flugi or whatever they're called el hombre secreto as the spanish version of secret agent man in repo man said <laughs> more on danny trejo circling back to that did you know that they are related wait well okay wait a minute danny trejo and who robert rodriguez Ruin. okay no i didn't know that how are they related they are i think either cousins or second cousins so I don't know how much of this is like not coincidental, but like they sort of knew each other and then they were both in show business and reconnected that way or whether like they were close their whole lives type of thing. It's not clear to me, but um, they are either cousins or second cousins. OK, well, that's interesting. But apparently the idea of having Danny Trejo play this character Machete was long in the works it was brewing for quite a while because i i guess the the movie that put robert rodriguez on the map 
and was kind of like his Reservoir Dogs, his directorial debut, is a film called El Mariachi in 1993. And it was the first installment of what came to be known as the Mexico Trilogy. And like from 1993, Danny Trejo's in the mix. And I guess he was already thinking about how can I create a starring vehicle for Danny Trejo? Mm. <laughs> so uh, the, the descriptor that I would use for Danny Trejo is tough. Yes. He, he looks like he's made of leather. He's got like a wrinkled face, but not like an old man wrinkled face. Like a left out in the sun and has never come inside in his life face. Like he's made out of naga hide, like an old baseball glove. He looks like someone who would be, and I think also to some extent has been, typecast as like a tough Mexican gangster cartel type guy. Yeah, he's in Breaking Bad. Kind of guy that winds up on a turtle. Yeah, yeah exactly. The kind of guy who gets on the wrong side of the, the cartels and is beheaded. You got to watch Breaking Bad, Dan. Apparently, yeah. Also, he is in the Robert Zombie Halloween, and you only see it in the extended cut. Maybe this is going too off course, but... <laughs> no, no, it's it's worthwhile because did you watch Spy Kids 4, Andrew? I have not. I need to. Okay, because we get in that movie also adult Daryl Spara. Yeah. Yeah, but finish your point because we're going to kind of be all over the map in this episode. In the asylum, all the night janitors, like, really abuse Michael Myers, but Machete is one of the janitors at night, and he doesn't. He's, like, really nice to him, and you only see it in the extended cup. When Michael Myers gets out, he still brutally murders Danny Trejo, and it's always bothered me, but I guess the point is Michael Myers doesn't care. He'll just kill anybody, but it's really upsetting. Yeah, he has no humanity. But what's the other connection? Because Junie's in that movie too, right? Oh, great point. Yes, you're right. He's the first kill. He bullies Michael Myers as a kid. And then, yeah, Michael finds him out in the woods and bludgeons him to death with a branch. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so really, if we wanted all the Spy Kids movies, we would also have to watch both Rob Zombie Halloween films. (laughs) (laughs) Something about this Uncle Machete character that we've alluded to, and I'll just say explicitly now, is that he did indeed get his starring vehicle in two movies, Machete from 2010 and Machete Kills from 2013, where he plays a darker variation of the character that we see here. Right, so this is kind of like a backdoor pilot to to step back into the groove into the actual topic at hand he's like the cue of these movies he's the one making the spy gadgets and in the machete films which i've not watched yet it's more of like the original concept of what the character would be because in 2007 tarantino and rodriguez collaborated on grindhouse which was an homage to older exploitation films And so they each have their own, like, mini features that make up this, like, fake double billing. So Tarantino in that one has got Death Proof, and Rodriguez has a film called Planet Terror. And then those two movies are, like, bookended by trailers for other films. 
and one of the trailers is for Machete, the action exploitation film. And it's funny, that trailer, it's a fake trailer, of course. Well, it's interesting. I don't know. I didn't know the whole backstory so that this character had been conceived much before Spy Kids, because I thought part of the joke was probably that he was taking this obscure character from a kid's show and making something really grim and violent around it. Because it is hinted in Spy Kids that Machete has done some dark deeds in his time. But when they made the actual feature film in 2010, they pulled, I think everything that we see in the trailer is either recreated or I don't know how exactly how it happened, but we actually see what is shot in the 2010 film from the 2007 fake trailer. So that's the real backdoor pilot. It's like the fake trailer turned into a real trailer for the movie. That is really cool. But here what he does is make gadgets. Yeah. And so he's got like gumballs that you chew up and you spit at people and it shocks them. And like miniature jetpacks made for juveniles. I'm glad you brought up the electroshock bubblegum. One of my complaints about this movie is they lean too much on that specific gadget. It's used to escape like three or four times. For all the other cool gadgets they have, that one is overused. Yeah. Also, it it really just destroys Thumb Thumbs, which are, I mean, I guess all the robots are pretty powerful, but the Juni and Carmen robots have no problem with the electroshock bubblegum. It's kind of weird. Oh. Is that true? I thought there was one escape. They, I guess they eventually developed a... Resistance. Yeah, resistance. Yeah. <laughs> a defense. Also, just going back slightly, it really bothered me when they're in the taxi, the machetes, that Carmen gives the taxi driver all of the international currency. <laughs> just piles of money, yeah. Yeah. And, and she even says, this is all we have. <laughs> yeah, Carmen's level of stupidity seems to vary a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes she acts like a six-year-old, and sometimes she acts like a 16-year-old. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but while Machete's showing the kids around his gadgets, he's also kind of griping that he doesn't want to have to bail out his brother because his connection to the family is he's apparently Antonio Venderis's brother. We saw him in like the wedding flashback at the beginning. And he says, why do I need to watch out for Gregorio? Why do I have to teach Gregorio right from wrong? And so it's kind of, you know... Like the the ghost of Christmas present with Scrooge. It's, you got to throw throw his own words back at him because these are things that Carmen said earlier about, oh, why, why do I have to be my brother's keeper? Uh, but ultimately, Machete does let them use a little miniature jet that they fly out and now they're able to reach Floop's castle. Did you have something to say about Floop's castle, Dan? It's like Alcatraz. It's like an island in the middle of the ocean, but with raised walls so that nobody can get in or out. So, I mean, like Pee Wee was not filmed on Alcatraz. Like Pee Wee was filmed in a TV studio, but I guess Floop is independently wealthy enough that he can have his own private island where he's building his creations and filming his TV shows. Yeah, and it also kind of looks like a shoe. It's like... Very, I don't know what the meaning of that is, but we're, we're going to see there's like a theme of people isolating themselves to create. In every excessively elaborate architecture, I've been seeing it, the house from Encanto. 
It's what I've been thinking of whenever I see something like that in the past month or however since I saw it. We don't talk about the toy maker. We don't talk about Floop. We don't talk about (laughs) Thumb Thumb. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Junie and Carmen are able to get there in the jet and they infiltrate the castle using all these gadgets they've been given. Uh, Just as Mr. Lisp arrives for like the the demonstration of the fully operational spy kids and i don't know about you guys how did you watch these movies andrew how did you watch spy kids one this time around well um so the last time i watched the trilogy was the beginning of college before that it had been forever and that time i watched them on netflix they're no longer on netflix even though netflix had the spy kids show this time i watched them on putlocker (laughs) Okay, and Dan, did you do something similar? Yeah, similar uh, back alley viewing. Okay, all right. I did rent them on uh, on Amazon, but I noticed a scene here in the movie that I had never seen before. Interesting. And so my question is, in the versions that you guys watched, was there a shark piss scene? Yes, I did not remember that. Okay, Andrew, did you have this scene? There was a lot of sharks. You're right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So when we watched this multiple times as a four and eleven year old, this scene was not in the movie. We 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 watched this many times. This was not there. You sure it wasn't there? That's weird because I couldn't remember this ever happening before either too. And I thought I was like, oh, it's weird. I don't remember that. Is there like an extended cut or something? There must be. It must be like an Emmett Otter thing going on, because they're like swimming up to the castle. And there's a bunch of sharks just hanging in the water. And Carmen says something like, Oh, I did a report on this in school, but sharks sleep sometimes. So we just have to not wake them up. But Junie's like, Oh, we've been swimming around a long time. and I gotta go. And he, he, he urinates this large cartoonish yellow cloud and it awakens all these CGI sharks, and they get rushed by all the sharks just as they make it into the door. And I do not remember this, and I, I wanted the world to know. <laughs> because it's like, it's weirdly specific. It's like, it'll it'll imbalance the salinization, and that is the mechanism by which they determine if it's time for them to sleep. And it's like, uh, eh, okay, hope he yeah. doesn't pee then. Every time I previously watched this film, they just walk into the castle. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no shark piss scene. Uh, but if you track it down, I guess there's a good chance that you will see this scene now. But they get into the castle, and Junie finds his way into the virtual room where the TV show gets made. And he sees that Floop is trapped in there. And I liked this scene. Because Junie and Floop get to have a heart-to-heart over, like, why they like this weird show. Right, and another theme of the movie is the value of children and their perspective. And you see it in a lot of different ways. And, like, one is the whole notion of the way that we're going to take over the world is we're going to make kid-shaped spies and secret agents but then also like the parents worrying that, oh, why does this kid like this weird thing and all this stuff? And so it's kind of a cool payoff when Floop is trying to figure out what's the magic ingredient missing from my show. 
And Junie says, it's it's children. You need kids. Floop like loses his mind. Like, you're right. That's it. I don't know. Is is kind of interesting and also kind of stupid. Like Floop, did he not think, hey, maybe I should have kids on my kid show? Like every single show of note has done. Yeah, Sesame Street. It's got kids on it. I don't know. But yeah, it was it was uh It it's hard to say what Floop thinks. <laughs> He's a little all over the map. It's a real weird show. But yeah, Junie does make this recommendation of you got to include kids and ultimately makes the judgment that Floop is a good guy. He might be a little confused, but his heart's in the right place. He might have dabbled in international terrorism. And he helps free him from the simulation. So now Floop's on their side and he's running around the castle helping like unfooglify Gregorio. (laughs) as andrew said pretty much immediately and now they're ready to confront the group uh minion and lisp and this army of spy kids that they've made and luckily floop is able to like remotely flip the switches that he needs to to make the spy kids good too so at the moment of climax they don't attack the family but instead they attack Lisp and his cronies. And right before that, uh, Machete and Antonio Banderas reunite. Yes, Machete jumps into the fray as well, and he's going to stand by the side of the Cortezes. But we do get an epilogue that shows a happy, more functional family, and we see that indeed Floop has added children to his show, the robot doppelgangers of Carmen and Juni. And then in the final moment, the OSS director shows up on a TV screen to give Carmen and Junie their next mission. And the kids insist, hey, man, our parents have to come, too, because it's all about family. And this OSS director is another casting coup because all of a sudden George Clooney is in the movie. (laughs) That's right. For one scene. But, you know. And that's Spy Kids 1. And so, Dan, that was the only one that you had seen previously, right? Correct. So I was very not prepared for what was coming. In the end, you ended up doing more research than any of us. So now (laughs) you are, in fact, the most comprehensive Spy Kids fan. Perhaps. (laughs) Spy Kids consumer. (laughs) But are we ready to talk about Spy Kids 2 from the following year? I think I'm ready. All right, so this is the Island of Lost Dreams. I'm not sure what makes it the Island of Lost Dreams, but certainly it is an island. So, as I alluded to earlier, from this point, a lot of the trappings of what you might consider spy films are really out the window. I I think at this point, the first one made enough money that Robert Rodriguez is just like totally free to do his own thing now. And just, like, pay homage to the movies that he likes and just kind of throw whatever he wants into the mix. I agree. The first half hour of the second one I was watching and I was like, all right, there's some spy stuff here. And then that was the last time in the Spy Kids cinematic universe that I had a thought even remotely resembling that. Yeah, because it does kind of follow up on the aftermath of the first movie, but it, it gets away from it pretty quickly. And just overall, there's way more CGI in this one. And there was quite a bit in the first film. But 
there's a lot where it's like you can just tell that everything was on a blue screen, green screen environment. Yeah, I want to talk about that just for a second, because I think it's important for understanding an important ingredient in the Spy Kids movie, particularly two and super particularly three, is that Robert Rodriguez is his own editor for many of his movies, including all three of the main Spy Kids trilogy. And he was an early adopter and enthusiast of digital editing. And I think I saw a note, Brian, that you wrote somewhere that some of it might have even been shot entirely digitally. Yeah, so this was 2002, which was the same year as Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, which has the somewhat dubious distinction of being the first feature film shot entirely digitally. And I guess Rodriguez was like just a couple months behind. And these movies, the second and third in particular. So you see some of it in the first movie where there's like when their jetpacks are flying around, they're clearly green screen on the background. And like he's got a I don't know enough about video editing in other terms, but he's like got the shape of Junie dragging it around the frame. So it looks like he's flying around crazy in this setting. And so just all sorts of effects like that, that computers were making viable around the turn of the century. And the second and the third just lean hardcore into it. Everything is green screen, digital editing, just like a Crayola dollhouse playset, practicing his skills, just trying out wild shit and seeing what sticks with like messing around with these digital tools that he has. Yeah. No argument here. But I will say Spy Kids 2 is the first one that we saw in the theaters. I have fond memories of going to see this one. And we also got a lot of the McDonald's toys. Because something Andrew taught me is that all of these movies actually had partnerships with McDonald's. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, every movie had McDonald's toys. I was surprised rewatching that Spy Kids 3D I don't think had any McDonald's product placements. But yes, every movie had toys. And the first two definitely have prominent product placement. Yeah. The first movie's toys are like generic spy devices. The second all assemble together into Ralph is the name of the bug, right? They, yeah. They're one of those unique McDonald's toy lines that assemble into something greater. Oh, they Megazord. Yeah, pretty much. And then the third are like weird 3D hologram strange things that aren't as cool, but they're still pretty good. Those are the ones I remember the best, but yes. I thought we had a toy of the bug. I guess we had a non-negligible subsection of the bug. <laughs> it's like we, like sun, like one of the toys is sunglasses and it like makes the bugs eyes and, and stuff. But we, we had pieces like that. So yeah, Junie's one example of the just omnipresent CGI is Junie has like a little spy bug in this one that assists him. It's like his little R2D2 or his boobo. Let's <laughs> see, it is his boobo. But Spy Kids 2 opens at a theme park. And the theme park, it's not Disneyland, but it is Troublemaker Studios land. It is themed to the studio that Robert Rodriguez runs and that made the film itself. 
so like there's this like bad boy Dennis the Menace or Kelvin kid who's their logo and he's like all over this theme park there's a mascot of him and where do you think that costume is now because I want it (laughs) (laughs) oh man there's like a blockbuster kid who was their mascot early on and I saw somewhere pop up a video or maybe you found it on YouTube Andrew of a guy running around in a blockbuster mascot costume do you remember that and he like does he fall over a bush or something (laughs) one of those good like YouTube haiku videos Yeah, just a, a short little thing yeah uh, but here in this scene, it's uh, the president's daughter is like at the grand opening of this park. And she boards this ride called the Juggler, which is just another example of the crazy CGI. But I, I really would like to go on a amusement park ride that juggles you. I couldn't disagree more. This theme park seems like it would kill any person who attended. The rides go like 170 miles an hour blurring through the air like things flying in the air i was terrified as i was watching this but i like the idea of things actually leaving the ground and like fully unrestrained at a theme park i mean that seems like something that's guaranteed to fail as soon as there's like even a 10 mile per hour wind but it was still kind of a cool concept i mean it seems like the juggler is the only one that wouldn't necessarily kill you straight off of g-force if it ran correctly (laughs) but obviously there's a lot going on because there's actually like one that like intentionally crashes into itself right oh yes that one too yeah you're right (laughs) so i think you could survive the juggler if it ran right and it would definitely be the coolest one to be real so the the g-force thing is interesting And this is just totally, I know we're kind of going all over the place here. This is probably the most all over the place here thing. (laughs) Um, When I was in high school, me and my friend Tyler, we learned about in in physics class when studying G-forces that 10G, so that's 10 times gravity as an acceleration. So that's what G-force kind of measures. It might be slightly different from that. But if you manage to accelerate at 10 G, that will make humans pass out. And if you accelerate at 20 G, that will kill you as a. So I think we're in death territory here. Although me and Tyler always wondered, could you like become so good at jumping that like your legs are so strong that if you like catapult yourself up that you could hit the 20 G and kill yourself just by jumping? I don't think that's actually possible, but maybe if you rode one of the rides here. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, could Superman knock himself out just by making the movements that he makes? Right. Yeah. Uh, But the president's daughter has got a rebellious streak, and she sabotages the controls of the juggler, so I guess it's even less safe than it would normally be. Uh, But she like gets out of the moving ride and stands on top of it and demands that her father the president come to rescue her and as like additional collateral she announces that she's stolen the transmooker device so that's going to be our MacGuffin, i guess here in this film 
this transmooker device that we won't know what it actually does for a while. But the president himself doesn't come to rescue her. The spy kids get sent in. And I guess now this is officially a branch of the OSS. Although it's kind of like a Watchmen thing where they're never actually called the spy kids... I don't think it, like their building says OSS Junior on it and they have the like code numbers SK1 and SK2 but like in the first film the spy kids were the robots it wasn't the children and and now I I don't know uh, this is just splitting hairs and we got more ground to cover but I think it's worth pointing out that like until the fourth one I don't think they're ever actually called the spy kids and that's Carmen and Juni that's a good point. <laughs> sort of. I really think they missed the ball. This should have been subtitled the trans mooker device because I just got so much joy whenever they would shout, they took the trans mooker device. It, it sounded like something out of an Adam West Batman movie. Yeah, it would be more apt than the Island of Lost Dreams because whose dreams are lost? I don't know. Where do dreams feature into this? There's... There's a new floop song in this movie that then gets covered by Alexa Vega as wannabe teeny bopper pop star called Island of Dreams. And she's singing about dreams. And where do we see dreams in this film? There's like, who's dreaming? No, Nobody dreams here. Well, that's interesting because dreams are extremely prominent in Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Oh, yeah. But they're not really in any of the Spy Kids. Okay, well, I want to make sure that you guys get get a few minutes to talk Shark Boy and Lava Girl, so we'll, we'll be there soon. I don't want to get ahead of things, and I don't know if this is really why it would be called that. I think the name is just probably nothing, but Romero's dreams were kind of crushed by himself. Okay, no, that's that's fair. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, it's, it's not exactly a... It's a dream in the sense of a goal, and it's lost in the sense of being dashed. It's like potential that wasn't realized. Mm-hmm. Okay, I like that. No, you're right. Not that we've talked about Romero yet, but... Right, no, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, 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 we'll explain. So the spy kids get called in to scale the ride and save the president's daughter, and this is when we meet... A new pair of spy kid agents, because it turns out Carmen and Juni aren't the only spy siblings in the game, because here are Gary and Gertie Giggles. They turn out to be the children of Donegan Giggles. Uh, you know, I kind of thought that Donegan was the dude's last name, but I guess it's his first name. That feels like a retcon to me. Donegan definitely seems like a last name. This is Mike Judge from the first movie, now no longer... A terrifying Fugly abomination. <laughs> he's he's back in his human form and apparently has human children. Uh, but Gertie is played by Emily Osmond from the Hannah Montana show. Uh. Uh, younger sister of Haley Joel. And Gary Giggles is like, he's the bad boy. He's like the oldest you can be and still be a spy kid. And apparently Carmen has got a crush on him. So he'll he'll always do something that pisses Junie off. And then Carmen will come to his defense and like justify his, his rude behavior and excusing it. And Junie's getting fed up with that. 
And I'm team Junie on this one. This dude's a, a little shit. I, I don't see what she sees in him. She could do better. <laughs> Says the Dan who was uh, 14 when Spy Kids 2 arrived on the scene. That's a very good point. <laughs> but uh, Junie succeeds in rescuing the president's daughter from this ride gone awry. Gary insists that he be allowed to bring the transmooker down so that they both look good. And in the next scene, we're at a banquet where all of the OSS is meeting. They're going to announce the next director of the OSS, and Gregorio thinks he's got a shot at it. But instead, Donegan gets the job. He gets appointed the director of the OSS. His kids get the prime number one spy kids slots. They get promoted to something called level one, which I guess Carmen and Junie are only level two. And uh, this means that now now the Giggles children rank them as well. And I would say even more important about the promotion is that he gets to be the one to say, they took the transmooker device. <laughs> yes, because pretty soon these weird guys who have infiltrated the party and are serving as the ushers, they all have these funny hats. <laughs> Red and gray hats. And uh, these are called Magnum Men. And they have magnet helmet things. And they have poisoned the wine that all the adults are drinking. They've like roofied everybody who is old enough to drink wine. <laughs> and so the president who's at this thing too, and all the influential spy adults pass out. But luckily the spy kids now are, are official and they're on the scene. <laughs> all of the secret service drink it too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess you're the one with law enforcement experience, Andrew. Is that is that something that would routinely happen? I don't think that would normally happen. <laughs> but even the spy kids are not enough to fight off these magna men. And like a flying saucer flies over the arena where the banquet's being held and scoops them up because it's got a magnet on the bottom. <laughs> and they all get hoisted off the floor by their magnet hats and flown away, hanging from the bottom of the ship by their heads and necks. And for whatever reason, I think this is really funny. <laughs> it's reinforced by when they get to their destination and all get dropped off, they're all clutching their necks like they're in horrible pain. <laughs> Just like dangling. It's 150 pounds of person. All dangling from the neck muscle. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad they didn't just uh, ignore that that would be strenuous. But yeah, like Dan said, they took the transmooker, which once the adults regain consciousness is what Gary Giggles announces. And I, I don't know how, but Gary pins this responsibility on Junie. Oh, Junie lost us the transmooker device. He just happened to be in the center of the room. I guess that's who everyone blames. Damn it, Junie! And like, across these movies, especially in 2 and 3, there's a lot of plot elements that I remember making more sense when I was 12. Like, I think I just took more things at face value. And if that's what the characters were going along with, I accepted it. That's no longer the case. I'm, I'm questioning things now. 
Because especially in the third one, there's just like stuff that doesn't make a lick of sense. Did you already talk about, I mean, I know you mentioned the levels, but did you talk about how level two means you can command the president? (laughs) (laughs) No, talk a little bit about that, Andrew. Alrighty, so you brought up Gary and Gertie's promotion to level one earlier, but Carmen and Junie are at this point level two, at least for now. And it's later mentioned that there's actually a level three, which I guess is the plebeian spy kids, because the adult members of the OSS, I think, are all level one. But I guess once you become level two, you're powerful enough to give commands to the president. You're above the president, <laughs> which first comes up at the beginning when the president's daughter climbs the juggler. And Junie says he can command the president to talk to his daughter and make things right, which never winds up happening. But additionally, later on at the OSS dinner, when all the Secret Service are dancing around the daughter, he can just part them by showing them his badge. And it's good stuff. <laughs> like, who can level one control with that? Can yeah. Who <laughs> can level one control? The Pope? Or, like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. No, that's a great point. I will say, and... This is just an example that I don't have that many stories to tell. I have brought this up on the podcast before. Uh, But at one point, I had a friend who... She was involved in the intelligence community. And she took me and a couple people to the Oval Office in the White House. And the Situation Room. And somebody asked her, like, half-jokingly, If you wanted to, could you touch the president? And she said yes. <laughs> like very matter of factly, yes, I could touch the president. So maybe maybe there is something to that. But now the spy kids are at a disadvantage. They need to chase after these magna men who have absconded with the transmuker device. And at first, of course, it's the Giggles children who get the assignment. But Carmen uses her hacking skills to instead get the assignment for herself. And Junie has been fired, actually, because Gary willed it so. G- Gary was able to pin this snafu on Junie. I don't, I don't know how, but he did it. But it's okay, because Carmen has hacked him back in, and now he's reinstated. Uh, did we see Carmen hacking anything in Spy Kids 1? No, I think this is a don't-ever-call-me-chicken situation where... It feels like it might have been there, but I don't think it was actually in the original, but it was used so frequently in the second and third that you attribute it to the first as well. I'm glad you said that. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's a Marty McFly chicken thing. So now Carmen and Junior are on the mission, and they take a new kind of sub. This is, uh, it's called the Dragon Spy, and it's a submarine that looks like a dragonfly. We definitely had this McDonald's toy, I remember. And they fly it out to this, well, they don't fly it, it's it's a, it's an underwater craft, but it, it has wings. But that's what they take. And it takes them out to this island, 
populated by strange giant monster creatures. And from this point forward in the movie, the whole thing is a Harryhausen tribute that I realized more now than ever. The most obvious influence at this point in the movie is the film The Mysterious Island, which the whole thing is like survivors facing off against giant animals. There's like a giant crab and a giant bumblebee. But the ones that Junie and Carmen are encountering are hybrids. They're like Avatar The Last Airbender style animals. They're all half one creature, half another. So what are some animals that we see on this island, Dan? I'm trying to remember. I think there's like a pig with wings, which just makes me think of The Simpsons when pigs fly. I think most of them are puns. There's like a catfish. So it's a cat with fish legs. Wait, no. A fish with cat legs. <laughs> I'd like to see that. And a horse fly. A horse with a fly's head. The tiger shark is that one too? I don't remember what they all are. Spider monkey. Yeah, the spider monkey is important. Bullfrog. Bullfrog, I think. And the other thing that's happening on this island is electronics don't work here. So something that was kind of set up when the Giggles were superseding the Cortezes and, and ranking them in every regard, they were getting better gadgets. And I think Gary Giggles even says, a spy's only as good as his gadgets. But now here they are in an environment where nobody can use gadgets. Aside from the machete elastic wonder. Well, that doesn't use electricity. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, you're right. Before they came, Junie and Carmen were gifted the machete elastic wonder, which is just a rubber band that he claims has a thousand uses. And soon, Junie and Carmen on the island run into the one human inhabitant living there, who is a mad scientist named Romero. And this is Steve Buscemi, and I, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but Steve Buscemi in this movie was a revelation to me. I had never seen him in a movie before prior to this, although I had unknowingly heard him as Randall in Monsters, Inc. But that would have been the same year, right? Or, oh, I guess one year before. Right, right. Uh-huh. Um, but he was he's just such a kooky character in this one as this scientist with cracked glasses. I just really enjoy his performance because <laughs> what Romero explains is that he was a genetic engineer and he had a dream, a lost dream, as, as Andrew explained, that he was going to make and sell miniature zoos. He was going to breed little tiny versions of animals and sell them in these sets. So children could have like tiny pet bears and lions and all kinds of animals. I would want one of these. <laughs> yeah, we need to do that. I like this idea, but I also feel like there would be people who would be against it. What about you, Dan? Would you purchase Romero's Zoo? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I feel like I would not. Dan is not big on pets, e even in any case. Yeah. Not even regular sized ones. I don't think I would want miniature dragons roaming my house, though, or whatever these things are. 
Yeah, well, it starts out as pretty normal creatures, but then he has the idea for Romero Zoo 2, where he's going to make all the crazy monsters. <laughs> and then he says, I accidentally mixed two test tubes, and we see the flashback, and this is clearly not an accident. <laughs> he's very clearly intentionally mixing these things together to make the monsters that are miniature bigger. He says, for children with meteor hands. <laughs> but uh, this is just the stupidest, wildest thing. He wants to make them bigger, yes, for kids with meaty hands. But apparently he, I don't know how much we're supposed to unreliable narrator project upon him. But that he gives him like, oh, four drops instead of two drops. So now they're taking over the entire island or something. And so now he just cowers in fear in his little lab inside the volcano on the island while all his big monsters are roaming and in control of the rest of the territory. He's getting slightly ahead, but somehow he has some way of not exactly controlling the ones up above, but like linking the ones up above with his miniature versions on the model. Kind of confusing. Yeah, it's weird, but I kind of like it. Yeah, I like it too. His little model creatures, if he shakes them out onto the model island, they will gravitate to the places where their big counterparts are. So that's a way that he can keep track of where they are. I want to take a very brief macro zoom out right now. Very brief. And just say, this was the point at which... The movie for me, and in general, the series in whole, transformed from a story into a set piece vehicle where if you had pinged me at any moment and said, hey, what is the story ramifications of what we're seeing right now? I would have said, I'm not actually sure, but I like seeing Spider Monkey punching this or that. It's like I kind of lost connection with the plot thread right around here, I would say. Yeah. No, I agree. My takeaway from Spy Kids 2 as a 12-year-old was I just loved this film. I was super into this one. This was my favorite. It's fallen back a few pegs now. <laughs> just realizing how little sense some of the stuff makes and how you can't necessarily call it a story. This is kind of like a lot of cool things that are happening. But it's here that Steve Buscemi gets to make a line that has launched a thousand memes in recent years. Where he says, do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? And so like if you see a Flash game where minions are giving birth or something, <laughs> this is the time to deploy... This Steve Buscemi quote. <laughs> Any, like, terrifying cringe thing on the internet. Do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? Like, what has humanity wrought? And is this what the creator meant for us to do with our time on this planet? Minor tangent. His name is Romero. I don't think Steve Buscemi is Hispanic. He does not look Hispanic, at least. And so giving him a blatantly Hispanic name, I and like also I think of Romero as kind of having a tough vibe to it. 
an intimidating vibe to it. That made me laugh a little bit. <laughs> it is kind of interesting. I mean, the Romero I think of is George Romero, the zombie film pioneer. I'm I'm pretty sure he's pretty white bread. Hmm. Uh, but I don't know. No, it, it is interesting that he's got the Hispanic name. And as we said, Latino actors... Well, well, actors are definitely present. Uh, I don't know how much of the culture, but uh, some. I mean, Robert Rodriguez is yeah, yeah, is of that ethnicity. So it is interesting. Somewhere along the way, we learn that Donegan is actually controlling both sides of this situation, Palpatine style. Like, he's paying Romero to, like, make monsters and run the island in whatever capacity he could be said to run it. And now he's also leading the OSS. So, like, he's pulling the strings of, of both sides of this equation. We also find out that the island is home to the real Transmooker device. Like, a bigger version of what we've seen already. And that what the Transmooker does, I guess, is disable all electricity nearby. So it's like a... What do they call those things? Electromagnetic pulse weapons. Yeah, EMP and that if a nation had a sufficiently powerful EMP transmooker, they would have a coup, just a, a big advantage over other forces because they could just disable all their power. They could transmook. <laughs> That's right. And I, I was just wondering at this point, what's the little one then? Like, why was there a little one? Was this just a model transmooker? I thought at some point they said it was a model. But why did it cause like a international red alert? Let's send all of our best agents. I mean, I guess it's because the guy in charge was coordinating everything. But these are the questions that are not worth asking in Spy Kids 2. <laughs> a potential episode title, The Questions Not Worth Asking. <laughs> But as Dan said, it's really more an excuse to have different action sequences. And part of this is multiple battles between the different pairs of Spy Kids siblings. Because now the Giggles children, the Giggleses, are here on the island. For instance, uh, at one point, Junie befriends the Spider Monkey, which is, as you might assume, the torso of a monkey on the thorax of a spider so he's riding around on the spider monkey and gary giggles commandeers a slizzard which is a snake lizard and basically looks like a brontosaurus it's like a dinosaur with a long neck as they're battling multiple times carmen is kind of starting to see through whatever allure she found in gary giggles she's losing her crush although not entirely by the end of the movie he does have the spiked up hair in the front with the bangs. It's a good look. Very 2002. And he and he's pretty tall. He's he's definitely taller than the other spy kids. If just by merit of being older. But there's just Harryhausen moments galore. So like the battle between the spider monkey and the slizzard is very reminiscent of the Cyclops in the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad fighting the dragon. And I already mentioned that giant monsters on an island is the entire premise of Mysterious Island. The spider monkey also looks a little bit like 
like Mighty Joe Young. Did you see any of that, Dan? Uh, I can see that, yeah. A little bit. And then what really tips it over the edge of, there's no gray area here, he's definitely paying homage to Harryhausen, is there's a freaking skeleton battle. Yeah, there's skellies. And they've got the swords and everything, and they're all fighting, so... I think when you when you throw in the, like, Calabos clay mutation from the first movie, Rodriguez must have liked Harryhausen films. And and now, he, he, because he had a successful movie, or, or a whole string of successful movies, he doesn't have to make a conventional spy movie now. He can just make a Harryhausen monster movie. Except that the monsters are CGI that 20 years later would look very outdated. Put it in a straightforward and bland way. But yeah, the, it's all shitty CGI. It's not quite Ivan Ooze in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers bad. It's only a couple levels above that, though. I mean, some of them look kind of fun and kind of interesting, but it's watching it nowadays, it's definitely whenever there's CGI as opposed to non CGI on screen, it is very glaring. Whereas Harryhausen. The stuff that he was doing was always the coolest and most timeless part of that movie, at least of the two that I saw. Well said. Yeah, this may not stand the test of time, but I'm glad that we're revisiting it here. Just seems kind of random to have the skeleton battle. Like, I mean, is Romero behind the sea monsters too? That's a great question. I mean, there's, you're, no, you're right. There's no way that he's behind the skeletons. Or he would have mentioned that. I think, I guess we're supposed to believe that other things have happened on this island because the skeletons are like battling over a magical amulet, like uh-huh. Pirates of the Caribbean style. So clearly there's non-Ramiro-based intrigue occurring here. <laughs> yeah. Really, we could come back to this island in some other Rodriguez project and, and learn new things. Origin story of the two grappling skeletons or something, yeah. Ramiro does eventually come out of his cave, heeding the children's advice, and he finds that his creations actually love and listen to him. <laughs> the result is we get Steve Buscemi riding around on these weird CGI creatures. I like it. I can respect it, yeah. I feel like Steve Buscemi was a little underused in this movie, though. He He's there, but he's not as present as Floop is in the first. Yeah, I think neither of the subsequent creator antagonists really matched Floop. I, I think Floop was the embodiment of what Rodriguez was going for. And then we get two knockoff Floops. Mm. Although I think Buscemi is a better actor than I think either of them for sure. But certainly I was thinking of Spy Kids 1. Alan Cumming or whatever. Mm-hmm. Although he gets to do some fun stuff in Spy Kids 1. But yeah, uh, I, I agree. Yeah. So the parents are in Spy Kids 2. And I remembered them having a bigger role. But it's like very minor. Because the whole movie, they're like making their way to try to track down the kids. And they're joined partway through by the grandparents, who we hadn't seen before. The grandfather is played by Ricardo Montalban. So bringing in kind of a more vintage Hispanic actor, Latino actor. I think it's interesting that 
who was Ricardo Montalban's most iconic role, but Mr. Rourke, the host of Fantasy Island. And this is a movie about what else but a fantastic island. He's also going to be important in the third Spy Kids film. Kind of the, the gist of Fantasy Island was like, you want to be careful what you wish for. Because people go to the island to, like, have a fantasy made real. And then they often have to reckon with the consequences of that. Like, to the point that recently Bloomhouse made a fantasy island that was a horror movie. So I, I think it's not coincidence that he's cast in this role. It's a good pull. It's a good connection. But eventually, this family, the parents and the grandparents, they make it to the island. And they're here to rescue the kids. And here at the moment of climax, there's a big confrontation where everybody's together. And Gary, at one point, grabs up the transmooker and, like, trains it on the parents and grandparents. Like, he's going to attack them with it. And I guess it doesn't work because Gertie sabotaged it. But, like, how would this have worked anyway? Because it's not a freaking laser gun. <laughs> it's like, you. it turns off electronics. How are you going to shoot Antonio Banderas with it? I'll go back to my questions not worth answering. Line. I mean, there's, a, yeah, no, I agree. I also want to point out Antonio Banderas is very checked out. He's very hammy and eye rolly in this movie, whereas he was actually trying to play a dad in the, the first movie. He was the one who I, I could tell read the script and realized the direction the franchise was going and drastically adjusted his performance accordingly <laughs> Antonio Banderas is not in Spy Kids 4 is Carla Gugina no she wasn't she wasn't in it either but mm -hmm. but the the president flies into the island because once they uh do disable the transmooker now all communications devices work and the island is more accessible uh and and so everybody convenes on the island Ramiro is is free now, and he gives Junie the little miniature spider monkey as a keepsake, and everybody flies back home. And we get kind of an interesting music video. What happens in this music video in the credits, Andrew? Um, so Machete gives Carmen a microphone that makes her sound like trying to think of what the fake singer name he tells her is. I think it's Brittany Cortez. Okay. So she's all auto-tuned and sounds great. And later on, Junie slaps a belt on her, also from Machete, that makes her dance like crazy. And then he gives Junie a guitar or something that helps him play the guitar that makes him sound like... I think he says Angus Van Santana. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and yeah. They're just killing it out on the stage. I wish it could have been out in that crowd. But yeah, it's good stuff. I don't think the song is as good as the Game Over song, but it's pretty good. Yeah, same page. Better song in the third one, but that's literally the only thing I liked more about three than two. Uh-huh. And, and two had a music video, so. Yeah, you're right. That wraps part one of Brian's Jumbo birthday episode on the Spy Kids trilogy. Join next time as we discuss Spy Kids 3, Robert Rodriguez's extended Spy Kids universe, and answer, is it good for all of the Spy Kids movies? <laughs>